0: Delighted that you're here with us this morning at Bergen Park Church. My name is Gary um, McNally and um, just filling in for Jim a little bit this morning. Uh, Apologies that we're going to depart for just uh, a little bit here from the book of Ephesians. Uh, I'm actually going to be looking, uh, we're actually going to be looking at Luke chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, you can open to uh, Luke chapter 16. Uh, And I guess looking at a passage that I love because Evangelism is uh, probably my primary gift uh, as a Christian and and formerly as a pastor. Um, and I really love finding the gospel of grace in what we might consider unlikely places or in places where people might not uh, normally recognize the gospel of grace. Uh, so while you're turning to Luke 16, I'm just going to read one quick passage out of the book of Romans. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm only going to read a few verses. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 24. The Apostle Paul writes, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, Father, we thank you for your Word, and as we look to it this morning, we ask, along with the psalm writer, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things. We ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, when Janine and I got married, uh, we we spent most of our honeymoon in Australia, uh, my first trip there, uh, of course, Janine's uh, home nation. And uh, while we were in Australia, we uh, near the end of our time there, we spent uh, quite a bit of time in our hometown of Melbourne, Australia. That's uh, for you Yankees. That's not Melbourne; it's Melbin. Okay, because Australians laugh at you if you say Melbourne. So, we were in Melbourne, Australia, uh, and it was a Sunday morning, and we were actually going to Janine's home church uh, for worship service. Now, we had a rental car, and to be honest. Uh, that was a real adventure for me. Uh, it was the first time that I was not only on driving on the wrong side of the car, but in addition to that, driving on the wrong side of the road. Uh, if you've never done that, it's, it's a really interesting adjustment. It isn't too bad when you're just going straight down a, a highway. Um, one person said to me, just remember, Gary, that the driver's always in the center of the road. You're always by the line. So that helped a little bit, but it gets confusing when you get to like four lanes across, or when you go into a circle, or as the Australians called a roundabout. Uh, it gets really interesting then because you get, you get vertigo very easily. You know, you, you, I didn't know vertigo. So it's, <laughs> it, it gets really hard. And this particular morning we're on our way uh, to church and I'd only been married a week. It was raining, raining hard as a matter of fact. I'd only been married about a week, but I was sharp enough even in one week that I knew something was up. So finally, I look over to Janine, and I say, is there something wrong, sweetie? And she's like, quiet for a minute. She said, it's just that, look, you've been struggling with driving here anyway. And on top of that, it's pouring rain. The roads are slippery, and I think you're going a little too fast. I'm, I'm not comfortable. Now, I guess the proper response would have been, oh, I'm so sorry, hon. I'll slow right down. But I didn't do that. I, I didn't do that. Um, why didn't I do that? Well, uh, I guess the ladies would probably have a different opinion from that than most of the men would. But here's what I really said. I said, you know, hon, have you forgotten that, you know, I've been a heavy equipment operator for the last 20 years? That, you know, I, I run cranes, I run earth movers, I run bulldozers. And not only do I run them, I move them from one place to another on these huge flatbed trailers. You know, I... I can drive anything. I can do anything behind the wheel. You want to see my CDL? You know? I said something to that effect. And why did I say that? And the ladies are thinking, because you're a male and you're not too bright. But, <laughs> but can I be deadly honest with you for a minute and, and deadly serious? I said those things because I wanted to justify myself. I said those things Because I wanted to justify myself. You know what? But I take comfort in the fact that I'm not the only one who likes to justify bad driving habits. Let me read you a few things that were actually said either to insurance adjusters or police officers by people who had been involved in motor vehicle accidents. A man had hit a pedestrian with his car and yet insisted it was not his fault. When asked by the, by the adjuster why he believed the pedestrian to be at fault, the man replied, because he admitted to me that he had been run over before. <laughs> so the insurance adjuster, on another occasion, same, same situation, a pedestrian had been hit. And he says, why do you think the pedestrian is at fault? And the driver replied, because he hit me and then he went under my car. A man claimed to be innocent after hitting a stationary cable car in San Francisco. You hit a stationary cable car, the policeman said? Yes, said the man. It was coming the other way. I think what he meant was it was facing the other way, probably. I don't don't know. Then a man hits a parked car. You hit a parked car, said the policeman. Why? In order to avoid a collision, said the man. You know, people will do almost anything, won't we, at times to justify ourselves. And it's a dangerous thing to justify bad driving habits. But can I suggest to you that what we're going to talk about this morning is a type of self-justification that's far more dangerous than justifying bad driving habits. And that's the habit or the tendency that we all have as sinners to justify ourselves spiritually, to justify ourselves spiritually. When we come to Luke 16 here, our Lord is talking to a group of people, and the Pharisees are listening in. And as we pick up in verse 14, Jesus has just finished telling them the parable of the unjust steward. Uh, You may be familiar with that. The the last line of the parable of the unjust steward, uh, our Lord says this. He says, So no one can serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees are listening in on this, and they didn't like what they were hearing. Let's pick up the action uh, in verse 14 of Luke 16. Notice just verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. Uh, If you're looking at the King James or the New King James, it'll say they were deriding him. In In other words, they were absolutely scornful at what they had just heard. And the reason they're scornful is because they love money. And what Jesus said, cut to the heart. You can't serve God and money. You can serve one or the other, but you cannot serve both. Then notice what he says in verse 15. He, that is Jesus, said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. The Pharisees were guilty of this most dangerous of all self-justifications. That is the tendency to justify ourselves spiritually. I think the best example of that is probably found just two chapters ahead of where we're at. We're in Luke 16. If we were to look at Luke 18, you'd find uh, what we call the of, uh, yeah, the, parasy, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in that parable... Uh, it says a Pharisee and a tax collector go up to the temple to pray. Uh, The tax collector bowed with his face to the ground and simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee, by contrast, stands there and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, not unjust, not an adulterer, not a murderer, and especially not like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tithe of everything I possess. Wow, what a guy, huh? He's a legend in his own mind. And what he's doing is, he's justifying himself. Justifying himself. See, spiritual, but you know, he, like all of the Pharisees, has one big problem in anybody who tries to justify themselves, and it's found in the last four words of verse 14. God knows, I'm sorry, the last four words of verse 15. God knows your hearts. God knows our hearts. We can try to justify ourselves all we want, but God knows our hearts. See, spiritual justification is not a matter matter of externals. It's a matter of internals. In this passage, there's essentially two types of justification. Man's justification, always based on externals and always by works. God's justification, based on internals and always a free gift by grace. Man's justification, externals by works. God's justification, internals by works free gift by grace, and listen carefully, the only justification that is acceptable to God is his own. The only justification acceptable to God is his own. In the early days of Major League Baseball, the very early days actually, 1908 to be exact, the New York Giants and the Chicago Cubs were battling it out uh, for the, whoops, for the National League pennant. And the Giants, uh, it was a walk-off win. If they did win, they would clinch things. Two outs, last of the ninth inning, and a 19-year-old rookie who was making his first start in the major leagues, a guy by the name of Fred Merkel, comes to bat for the New York Giants. There's a runner on first, and two out when Merkel comes up, Merkel lines a, and the score is tied one to one. Merkel lines a single down the right field line. The runner on first, McCormick advances all the way to third base. So now we have runners on first and third with two outs. Last of the ninth, game tied. The Giants' shortstop, a guy by the name of Birdwell, comes up and lines a single to center field. McCormick comes from third base, and seemingly scores the winning run. Game over, Giants win 2-1 and clinch the National League pennant. But wait, wait a minute. Fred Merkel, who was on first base, starts for second. But immediately, when McCormick crosses home plate, the fans come pouring out of the stands at the polo grounds in Brooklyn, pouring out of the stands, just mobbing the field, and Merkel gets about 10 feet from the bag at second base, and he sees this mob coming at him, so he just turns around and runs for the clubhouse with the rest of his players. The Chicago second baseman, Evers, who is a real student of the game, realizes that technically the rules say... That in a situation like that, the run cannot score or cannot count until the runners advance to the next base. So technically, until, uh, Merkel, Fred Merkel went up and touched second base, that run, McCormick crossing home plate, wouldn't count. So Evers is standing on second base, the Chicago second, screaming for the ball. Finally, someone throws him a ball, supposedly the game ball was actually thrown in the stands, Touched by a player. Therefore, it would have been a dead issue anyway. It would have been game over. But somebody throws him a ball. Evers appeals to the umpires, steps on second base, and Fred Merkel is called out by way of a force out at second base. And the run that McCormick had scored is disallowed. The game is tied one-to-one. But with the fans on the field and darkness setting in, the umpires call it, the game can't continue so they have to play it in a makeup game, a game which the Cubs win and not only win the National League pennant but go on to win the World Series as well. By the way, bad news, but if you're a Cubs fan, that's the last <laughs> World Series they won, 1908. <laughs> but listen, what a heartbreak to go through a whole season to have that kind of a season and to score, to, to score at home, to, to be home safe, you figure, we're the winners two to one. To be home safe, only to find out that you're out at home because you didn't touch second base. How sad, how tragic. But you know what's sadder still? Is that people, some people go through their whole life and they missed the most important home of all, our eternal home in heaven with Jesus Christ. They, they go through their life and they think they're going to be safe at home. But when they leave this world, they find out that they're out. They're not safe at home. They're out. Why? Because all through their life, they never touched base with Jesus Christ. Fred Merkel because of that blunder he made in 1908, he went on to play 16 seasons in the major leagues, was an outstanding player. He, he was given the name Bonehead Merkel, and it stuck with him for the rest of his life. But if he was a bonehead, at least he was only a bonehead for 50 or 60 years. It would be far worse, would it not, to be a bonehead for all eternity, to be separated from the presence of God for all eternity, We get home, guys, by amazing grace and grace alone through faith alone. Words may justify before men, but they never justify before God. Notice verse 15. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. People are impressed by works a lot of times. God is not impressed. You know, uh, some good friends that I played baseball with in high school... Uh, and for years after high school, when you can't play hardball anymore, you play softball. So we would play in all these different softball leagues, and we would get together regularly uh, for sporting events and just have parties, you know, Super Bowl party, World Series party, baseball party, you know, any kind of a major sporting event. But we had this saying, if you were invited to show up at so-and-so's house, whoever might be uh, sponsoring it on that particular day, make sure you show up knocking with your elbows. Anybody ever heard that before? Knocking with it, I I thought it was kind of original with us. Maybe, maybe Nick has. What it basically means is, if you're coming to the party, you better have your hands, your arms so full of snacks and drinks that you got to knock with your elbows. If you don't, you're not getting in. We we had a Super Bowl party one time, and this one fellow, Pete. I'll never forget it. He shows up, he's knocking on the door. And the party had been going a little while, so it was already in quite a festive mood. When when my buddy John opened the door, it was his house. Um, he goes, Pete's nickname was Monk. He said, Monk, you don't have anything with you. He goes, Well, no, I figured you'd have plenty here. Slam. He slammed the door. And I'll never forget it for the next half hour. He's going around tapping on all the windows and doors, like trying to get us to let him in. They wouldn't let him in. Wouldn't let him in. You don't knock with your elbows, you don't get in. But here's the interesting thing, guys. With God, it's exactly the opposite. Don't ever try knocking with your elbows on heaven's door. You'll never get in. The hymn is still true. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. God's not impressed by, men are impressed by works, deeds, supplies. God's not. It's a free gift by grace. And as a matter of fact, if you try to come any other way, if you try knocking on heaven's doors with your elbows, it's an insult to God. By the way, that brings us to the second portion. I've broken Luke 16 into two portions here. That brings us to the second portion. Knocking with your elbows or self-justification in any way is offensive to God because it represents an attempt to force your way into God's kingdom. It represents an attempt to force your way into God's kingdom. Look at verse 16 of Luke 16. Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom has been is being preached. And everyone is forcing their way into it. If you're looking at a King James or a New King James, it'll say, Pressing their way into it. But I I like the NIV's translation here. It's good. Since this news of the kingdom has been being preached, everyone is forcing their way into the kingdom. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus sends the disciples out. He says, go out, uh, heal the sick, uh, make the lame to walk again, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. So they do that. And while they're doing that, Jesus is out preaching in Galilee. And and, and while the, the apostles, the 12, are doing this and doing all these miraculous signs, cleansing lepers, making lame people walk again, even raising the dead, it creates a huge stir in the land of Palestine. And people, there's like this spiritual revival going on. But as Paul would say, it is not, in Romans, It is they had a zeal for God, but it was not according to knowledge. People are still trying to come by the law. People are still trying to come to God's kingdom by their works. And that represents, in God's eyes, an attempt to force your way into the kingdom. And guys, no one, no one can ever force their way into God's kingdom. The Pharisees, again, are typical. And Jesus wants to point out that Nobody can force their way into the kingdom. So he says this. Look at verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. See what he's saying? The law, Jesus is saying, effectively stops any attempts... At forceful entry into the kingdom. The law stops us in our tracks if we try to forcefully enter God's kingdom. See, everybody who just, who, who tries to justify themselves, everybody who tries to force their way into the kingdom, they all have one thing in common. They believe that God grades on a curve. We all know what that is, right? I think everybody, all of us at some time or another in our academic career has had the experience. I remember very vividly uh, in my sophomore year in high school uh, in a geometry class. Uh, the geometry uh, Math was just not my thing. My wife is a math teacher, and uh, she doesn't understand why I don't love math. I've never loved math. I've always been terrible at math. And in 10th grade, I'm, we're in geometry class. And Mrs. Donaldson comes up with this test. I guess there were about 30 of us in the class. And I think like 13 or 14, almost half of the class failed. I got a D. I I was so happy. I had a D. But here's what happened. Because so many people failed the test, I guess, you know, I guess as teachers that they're not happy with that or it doesn't look good or whatever. She makes the announcement. She's going to grade, regrade the whole test and going to grade it on a curve. All of a sudden, instead of like 13 or 14 people failing, only like six people failed. And the great news for me was I went from a D plus. I didn't mention the plus because if you get a D, what's the difference if it's a D plus or a D? <laughs> but I went from a D plus to a B minus. <laughs> I was tickled pink. I was happy. And see, when when we compare ourselves to somebody else, to others, and that's essentially what it is, grading on a curve, com- you know. We're being compared to our peers, compared to others. We do that in the spiritual realm, and it's encouraging a lot of times. It really is. There's always somebody that you can look at, either in your neighborhood or, you know, the news or, Lord forbid, even in your church, who's lower down the food chain, you know, whose behavior is not quite as stellar as yours. And And we get encouragement out of that. That's why the Pharisee, by the way, in Luke 18... That's why he's so encouraged. Lord, thank you that I'm not like... And he actually thanks God because he thinks he's better than other people. He's not, but he thinks he is. And and this this tax collector is living proof for him. Thank you, Lord. This guy's the scum of the earth. Thank you that I'm not like him. And it's encouraging. But it's false encouragement in the spiritual realm. And people who try to justify themselves, have one thing in common. They all believe that God grades on a curve, but he doesn't. The law stops all forceful entry, and God never grades on a curve. Jesus wants to press this point home, because the Pharisees are probably, they were deriding him when he finished the parable of the unjust steward. By this point, you can bet That they're upset, so he wants to press home the point that you're not okay. See, the Pharisees had this practice uh, where if if they were if they had a wife and she just cooked a bad meal, they could simply write her a certificate of divorce and say, "Here, you're gone. Go and pick somebody else." And this was rampant in Pharisaical circles, rampant in the Sanhedrin. So Jesus picks on this pet sin that they think is okay and after telling them that not, not one jot or tittle of the law can disappear. Not one jot or tittle. Then he says this to them. Verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman, woman commits adultery. And that one was like the coup de grace for the Pharisees. If they were deriding him before that, I guarantee you they're seething now. Absolutely furious. But you know what? Before we get too hard on the Pharisees, they thought they were good. They were into justifying themselves. But how often do we do the same thing? We think we're good. Or we compare ourselves to others. Or somebody says something Uh, positive about us, and it just really inflames our pride, you know? So we say, you know, you really did that well the other day. I was watching, and you did such and such, and in our mind we're thinking, yeah, I I was pretty awesome, wasn't I? (laughs) You know, when we think thoughts like that, I don't think we're ever closer to the flames of hell than we are at moments like that. But we all do it. We all do it. Are we really good? You know, I, I thought last night I was thinking about this, are we really good? And I remembered, anybody remember uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner's book probably 30 years ago? Uh, I think it was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Anybody remember that book? Qu- quite a while ago. Yeah, probably, uh, probably too long ago. I think it was late 80s or early 90s. But I remember thinking as I read Romans 3, you know what, Rabbi Kushner, the name of your book itself when bad things happen to good people, is a misnomer. Because the Bible says there there is no such thing as a good person. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, there is none good, not even one. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone astray. They have together become unprofitable. Or as the NIV says, they have together become worthless. The poison of asps is under their lips. God's view of humanity is that there is none good. That's why we need grace, amazing grace. None of us are good. There's a story um, that comes out of Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Ford's Theater, obviously famous because it's where our 16th president was assassinated. Um, but they still, they. They still run plays regularly. Janine and I had the pleasure of seeing uh, a Christmas Carol um, at Christmas time. Gee, even before we were married, probably 1991 or so, 92. But the story comes out of Ford's Theater about um, <clears throat> a play was was going on there. Had been showing there for some weeks, and. Um, these three ladies who were visiting Washington D.C. had gotten tickets to the play because it's a play that they had seen several times before, and this was a new rendition of the play, so they wanted to see it. Uh, they arrived at Ford's Theater just a little bit late, and as they go in, the the lights had already been dimmed, uh, and the first scene was beginning. And the usher takes them to their seat in the balcony, and it was just a short aisle at the very back of the balcony, um, like five seats. And he said, uh, there was a lady sitting in the far seat right against the wall. And they said, you three ladies just take these seats right here. So uh, a woman named Mary Harris goes over. And she sits down next to the woman who's against the wall. And they're all lined up. And they're watching the play. And they're loving this play, really loving it. And Mary Harris's friend that she came with leans over. She says, Mary, I think this is the best rendition of this play that we've ever seen. And Mary says, yes, yes. And so Mary leans over and she's talking to the lady next door and telling her, you know, we've seen this play so many times and this is the best rendition of this play that we've ever seen. So finally, Mary's friend that she came with said, did you tell the lady next to you that we've seen this play? She, oh, yes, yes. She said, I told her we've seen this play multiple times, but this is by far the best rendition that we've ever seen of this play. She said, did she agree with you? She goes, oh, yes, she completely agrees. This is definitely the best, she said. This is definitely the best one. Well, the play comes to an end. The house lights come on. Everybody stands up. And to Mary Harris's everlasting embarrassment, In the seat next to her is a mannequin that had been placed there by the stagehands at Ford's Theater. And you know, guys, you may consider yourself a good person. You may have convinced your wife that you're a good person. You may have convinced your other family members that you're a good person. You may have convinced your friends and relatives that you're a good person. You may have even convinced yourself, heaven forbid, that you're a good person. But let me tell you this. Whoever you commit, you've you convinced, know this. You've convinced a dummy. You've convinced a dummy. Because the Bible says there is none good. No, not even one not even one. And that's why we sing about, and we are so thankful for, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If I could go back in closing, go back to Fred Merkel for just a moment. The manager of the New York Giants back in those, in the early part of the 20th century, was a guy by the name of John McGraw. After that Infamous play that earned Fred Merkel the nickname Bonehead Merkel. After that infamous play, Fred Merkel went on, as I said, to play 16 more seasons. John McGraw said of him he was not only the smartest guy on the team, self taught chess player, nobody could beat him, great golfer, nobody could beat him. He said, and the greatest clutch hitter, he said, not the greatest hitter I ever had, but the greatest clutch hitter I ever had. He said, Fred Merkel never choked. The guy was absolutely fearless. And an awesome player. He goes, I wish i had had a team full of it. Yet he lived the last 50 years or so of his life with the nickname Bonehead Merkel. Get this. He retired in Daytona Beach, Florida. He bought a small, he had lost everything during the Great Depression. He bought a small fruit farm. Cultivated, raised, and sold fruit of various kinds in Florida. And played golf. And, in, and I hope got to enjoy his family for about 10 years. He died in 1956 of natural causes at the age of 67 and by his own request was buried in an unmarked grave. You know why? He said to his kids, his children, his daughter in particular, he said, people never forget. And he was scared that his family would show up someday at the cemetery and bonehead would be written across his tombstone, because he had been experiencing vandalism with with the name Bonehead his whole life. So he was buried in an unmarked grave. You know, every time I think of Fred Merkel, I think, Fred, I hope with all my heart that somebody shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you, because guess what? We're all boneheads. The Bible says all of us fall short. None of us measures up to God's standard of perfection. Heaven is a perfect place for perfect people. And the only way to get perfect is to be not, not self-justified, but to be justified freely by the grace of God. And for Fred Merkel to go all those years... With the nickname Bonehead is a tragedy. But I hope he heard the gospel of grace. Because while you can be a bonehead in the eyes of people for 50 or 60 years, it's even worse to be a bonehead for all eternity. Summing it up, guys, two types of justification in this passage. Man's justification, always external, always by works. God's justification, always internal, always an absolutely free gift by grace. And the only justification that's acceptable to God is his own. When you come to the place where you say in your heart, I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he did everything that God requires for me to go to heaven when I die. He paid my sin debt in full. At that moment, the Bible says, God gives you eternal life and you will never, ever perish. And not because I'm the one that gets to say it this morning, but guys, that's good news. It's the best news you're going to hear all day. Father, thank you so much for your amazing grace. Lord, help us by that same grace with which so many of us have been justified. Help us now to be sanctified, to be just a little more like Jesus every single day that you give us life and breath on this planet. And help us, mostly by our example, but when necessary by our words, to share that good news with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.